0: I'll quote a little bit from Layard, um, who says in his book, Happiness, he says, for some people, it seems impossible to be positive without some physical help. Until 50 years ago, there was no effective treatment for mental illness. So these two sentences really encapsulate all the difficulties um, with the CBT thesis. The first is the supposition that we should be happy. Mm -hmm. The second is, but if we're not happy, it is because we're suffering from a mental illness. Mm. And what follows from that is that the uh, solution, the cure for this mental illness is CBT.
1: Hello, and welcome to another in our Human Givens podcast series. Today, we're listening in on a fascinating conversation between Ivan Turrell, who's co-founder of the Human Givens Approach and director of Human Givens College, and Farhad Dalal, who is a UK-based psychotherapist and author. Farhad's book, which is called CBT, the Cognitive Behavioural Tsunami, Managerialism, Politics and the Corruptions of Science, is a robust, detailed and psychologically sophisticated critique of the frightening place where modern managerialism, regulation and compliance have taken us. And as one reviewer wrote, is a masterful analysis of the hidden forces delusions and tyrannies which corrupt and toxify science in this podcast we invite you to listen to two independent minds ivan turrell and farhad dalal quietly discussing the cbt tsunami
2: thank you very much farhad um, for agreeing to have a chat about your wonderful book I think it's a very important book. It's about, uh, the, well, it's called the CBT, the Cognitive Behavioural Tsunami. Um, and you talk about the cognitive or the CBT delusion. Uh, and I thought it'd be quite good just to, if I just read a paragraph near the end of the book, which sums up the delusion. Let's start with talking about the cognitive delusion. Uh, The delusion that modern humans are primarily cognitive, rational decision-making beings. The delusion continues. Thoughts precede emotions and are separable from them. Emotions arise when they're triggered by thoughts. Thoughts, cognitions, themselves consist of the perception of the situation one finds oneself in and the emotions are the response of that perception. In effect, mental life is said to be able to control emotional life. Irrational thought and perceptions produce problematic emotional states. Each kind of irrational perception constitutes a specific mental disorder and is listed in the DSM. Each of the irrational perceptions and cognitions can be corrected by a specific CBT treatment. Once corrected, once cognition matches reality, then the emotional life falls into line and the person is in recovery. This is readily achievable in anything between six and 20 sessions. Here endeth the delusion. That's <laughs> that a wonderful paragraph, beautifully written. And I, I'd really like to discuss all sorts of things to do with managerialism and mm-hmm. um, the way managers now get paid much more than people doing actual work and all that sort of thing, because I think this is one of the greatest scandals mm-hmm. of the NHS and uh, just about every organization is target obsession disorder. Yeah. And, yes. um, that should I be think. in the DSM too. Yes. Mm. <laughs> it should, shouldn't it? Yes, but I don't think they put it in because it, uh, it undermines their whole rationale yeah. of the pact that you describe between CBT practitioners and managers. Yeah. So um, why did you write this book?
0: Well, I wasn't really looking to write this book, but um, as I uh, I was just looking a little bit into CBT whilst I was writing something else, and what I uh, came across was uh, so incensed me essentially, and um, to discover that the great the great new therapy was essentially built on fake news. Mm. Um, So uh, maybe I can tell you about one of the triggers for the book. Um, before the book was even an idea, which is we attended here locally a uh, conference on happiness, which uh, Layard was a part of, on the Mm -hmm. science of happiness. And when we came to the conference, when we arrived, we were greeted with people holding placards, saying, get free hugs here. And uh, through the um, conference, it turned out that the science of happiness had discovered that uh, happy people tended to have more physical contact than others. And so um, this um, was reverse-engineered to decree that one could make oneself happier by hugging others. So even strangers. So it seemed to me that this was a bit like noticing um, that when dogs were happy, they wagged their tails. And then presuming from this, that if one taught unhappy dogs to wag their tails, they would become happy. So, so it takes something um, like hugging and it instrumentalizes it mm. and turns it uh, into a technique. Um, it's, it strips it of all meaning because I hug others as an expression of my feelings towards them. I don't hug, hug others in order to make myself feel better, although I might, but that's not its primary um, intention. I'll quote a little bit from Layard um, who says in his book Happiness, he says, for some people it seems impossible to be positive without some physical help. Until 50 years ago there was no effective treatment for mental illness. So these two sentences really encapsulate all the difficulties um, with the CBT thesis. The first is the supposition that we should be happy. Mm -hmm. The second is if we're not happy, it is because we're suffering from a mental illness. Mm. And what follows from that is that the uh, solution, the cure for this mental illness, is CBT. Mm.
2: Yeah? Yeah, well, I I, I think that's very interesting. uh, And uh, the the fact that um, they they reduce, or try to reduce, this is something I'd I'd like you to comment on, um, human feelings to numbers. And yeah. therefore, making it scientific when it isn't scientific, you know, there's no mm. way that you can, you can do that, um, yeah. and uh, and and that gives them the excuse of saying this is evidence based, yeah. And uh, this is something that all uh, good therapists face a problem with. It they say, "Is this evidence based? What you're doing?" Mm. It's what we've faced, you know, and we say, "Well, you know, you can actually see what's happening." Yeah. Uh, and that is evidence, you know, it's, it's, it's veridical truth, you know, you can see it. And, and, yeah. and that means if you've got things reduced to numbers and targets, you need managers. Yeah. And, and then you end up with managerialism, as you talk about in yeah. great, beautiful, well-written critique. So the thing that makes
0: it uh, scientific is um, rather than just ask you, how are you, or are you feeling a bit down? If I ask you on a scale of one to ten, tell me how depressed you are. Because you answer with a number, that gives the impression that this subjective state is now uh, an objective measure. Yeah. But you've just given me, you know, you could say I'm very, very, very depressed. Mm. We could say number eight. Mm. But the second one is considered as scientific, and the first one as just ordinary uh, conversation.
2: One of the big factors, I mean, we, when we ask people how they're feeling uh, on, uh, about their emotional needs, they, they will say, well, I'm, I'm, on a, I'm free at the moment. Yes. And then they could meet somebody in the afternoon, to two hours later, have a lovely time out with them, have an ice cream and so on, and suddenly feel that they're getting their emotional yes. needs better yes. met. Yes. So the whole thing is, is constantly fluctuating.
0: Yeah, it has to do with the very idea of evidence. Mm. Because it's not evidence, it's not evidence per se. Evidence isn't a self-evident category. Mm. But only certain kinds of evidence become acceptable. And in the book I use the um, example of the neem tree. Um, oh, yes. So for four, two, you know, thousands of years, Indian farmers have used the neem tree or elements of it as a pesticide. Then in 1993, I think it was, an American company called Grace patented a use of the neem tree as a pesticide. And after this, it was decreed in international law that farmers had to use their product. And if they did anything else, they were breaking the law. And of course, the farmers protested. But this didn't count for anything in international law, because they wanted documented proof that This knowledge had existed before the patent, Mm. and preferably in the form of a scientific paper. Mm. Well, this being folk knowledge, there was no such evidence. The actual evidence, the uh, lived experience that everybody could see, Mm. was discounted as anecdotal and non-scientific. So you can see how a notion of evidence can be used to throttle real evidence. Mm. So that's the kind of thing that happens where lived experience is discounted. It has to be something that's highly reduced and um, something that can be measured. Mm. And if it doesn't fit into that, then it, do, it simply doesn't exist. Mm. And, and I think a, a, lot, of, a lot of the um, difficulties can be put down to the, the philosophy of logical positivism that arose in the 1930s. So science is positivist, which is well and good, and um, and by definition, it will only take account of what it can measure and objectify and so on. But when the logical positivists hit the scene, they went one further, and they said, they actually said, well, for example, if I cannot um, prove the existence of fairies at the bottom of the garden uh, according to positive protocols, then I have to remain agnostic in relation to them. They might or might not exist. Mm. But logical positivists take the next step and they say, well, if it can't be measured, then it doesn't exist. Mm. And, uh, and moreover, that these are, um, it's nonsense. Mm. So it was on this sort of basis, say, that the behaviorists um, discounted notions of mind, will, cognition, and so on. They just dismissed them as nonsense. Mm. They said they didn't exist, they were
2: illusory. This is something that we come across all the time. If something isn't published in a peer-reviewed journal, it's not yeah. real. It's not true. Yeah. And and you you write a very moving paragraph about how um, universities in the academic world have become factories for producing papers, and as well as getting bums on seats as students, and and are not interested in pursuing the truth. It's how many papers have you published? Yeah. And the papers, because of this philosophy. Um, instead of sort of one person writing one brilliant new idea and publishing one paper in their entire mm-hmm. academic career, it, that, that um, they're discounted uh, and so sort of squeezed out because they need to be publishing so many papers a year. In, and uh, that's a terrible indictment of our university system when they are actually like factories yeah. for producing papers.
0: Yeah, and the same system is used in CBT research. Mm. When um, um, psychology research is considered, if certain forms of therapy do not, um, cannot be um, tested according to certain protocols, then the system doesn't remain agnostic towards them, saying we don't know whether this works or not, we cannot prove it. They actually say that these other forms of treatment are useless. Mm. So they take this extra step
2: which is uh, highly, highly problematic. That certainly happened to uh, the, the approach we take to dealing with trauma. and uh, I mean, you can, you can look at other things like storytelling. You know, storytelling has, has healed people for thousands of years, literally changed uh, the patterns in their brain uh, of the listeners so that they can see their way around difficulties. And, um, and that is an ancient art, yeah. but you can't put a num- numbers to it, so it doesn't get researched
0: yeah well you could say psychotherapy is um story building yeah it is we build um and, uh, you know, then it becomes a school and it's called narrative therapy and so on and then it becomes rigidified but mm. in principle that's what we're doing aren't we yeah we're, we're
2: making links and stories out of um well, you know, sort of enriching the patterns in people's brains for sure yeah. and um a- any good therapy will be doing that whether it's using ex- Bit physical experiences or uh, metaphorical experiences, you know, in stories and metaphors, um, which are sort of central to good therapy. You know, you can't really be a therapist unless you're a storyteller.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, if they and if they did do it, it becomes a bit like marking an English essay these days. You know, you have to show an example of this. You have to show again. It'll become so reductive.
3: Yeah,
0: Um, it will stop being a story, which is It'll stop having flow. Yeah, flow. You cannot have a story.
2: Yes, um, I know. And the thing about a story that helps somebody is um, that it can pop into the head of the therapist um, from nowhere. You know, it's not. It's not something they've learned. It just pops in, and mm-hmm. and and there's almost like a telepathic communication between the therapist and the person that they're talking to, and and it works seamlessly. Um, you know. I've, done this myself with people and uh, it's, it's wonderful. And, it, and people have been doing that for certainly hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, but again, you, you, because it's not repeatable in exactly the same way, and there's yeah. no sort of list where you can tick things off in boxes yeah. uh, to prove it, it doesn't get counted as evidence. I mean, what, what is really interesting to me about CBT is is the Uh, it's tyrannical hold on government money and funding and uh, which is the big scandal and uh, I don't know if you'd like to talk a bit about how Layard and his colleagues got the whole thing Mm, sticked up.
0: So um, Layard and uh, Lord Layard as he's now called Richard Layard is an economist and um, He's an economist. He was at the LSE and his primary interests were unemployment. He was into um, the, the sort of happiness, um, faith, and, uh, and most importantly, was part of the um, Labour Party elite. He was, mm. you know, he, he knew um, Blair and Brown and so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, he had a chance meeting with uh, somebody called David Clark, who was... Um, Uh, high up in the CBT world. And um, very quickly, the two of them realized that by joining forces, they could um, foster the interests of each. Mm. For Layard, it was the happiness agenda. And for Clark, it was um, to proselytize CBT to the nation. Mm. And um, um, so they came together and they um, wrote a very powerful manifesto 2006 called the depression report a new deal for anxiety depression anxiety and depression disorders and uh, and so what they argued was that the, uh, the unemployed were unemployed uh, because they suffered from men- mental illnesses like anxiety and depression and this prevented them working um, and they made uh, no reference to the job market the economy and so on these people weren't working because they were suffering from a mental disorder. And in this report, they said that um, this cost the uh, exchequer something I like $6 billion a year, and the country as a whole lost revenue and earnings and so on, $12 billion pounds a year. Mm. And they said that for a cost of £750, they could cure uh, a person suffering from these um, illnesses with CBT in a few weeks, after which they would be able to work. And he says even if they went back to work one month earlier, uh, this would actually bring money into the bank. Mm. The the, the, uh, economy would save money. So this would be a treatment that would uh, really end up costing the country nothing and in fact benefiting the country. So when Mm. somebody goes back to work, the benefits bill goes down and the tax income goes up. Mm. And, And he said that for... He wanted the government to invest 500 million pounds a year mm. in the service. And so if you look at these figures, you invest 50p and you earn 12 pounds at the end of a year. This is, um, this is a very good investment. Mm. So it was on the basis of this, I think, that this um, treatment was taken up by the then Labour government. Mm. Because essentially it was seen as a money-making venture. Yes. And it was sold, um, and it also made the government look good. It said made the government look good because they were saying now, you know, we're looking out for the welfare of the people. We're trying to do good. Mm. But I think their real uh, intention was to try to do well, you know, to save money, to make money, Mm. get all these people back into work and we'll make money. And indeed,
3: more recently, um. in the time of the conservative government,
0: they were, um, one, and there was a big furore about this, they were going to um, uh, take CBT treatment into um, unemployment centres and people had to subject themselves to this or else their benefits would be stopped. Yes, yes. There was a big furore about this and they didn't follow through on it. But it is the promise that was made at CBT's launch Mm. So it fits with um, the way it started.
2: Mm. Uh, it's very interesting and very revealing about how easy it is to con politicians with, if you have something um, that appears to make money, appears to be doing good and can be presented in such a way that puts them in a good light. Yes. Uh, they will give millions and millions and millions of pounds to these people of our money. Yeah, but the, the the actual reality of CBT is that the research into it has been totally uh, discredited by yourself and others who've actually looked at the results of uh, what they publish as proof of the effectiveness of CBT. Would you like to talk a bit about that?
0: Okay, perhaps we should just say what CBT treat, CBT treatment is. Yeah, let's so, go. So let's start there. So CBT says that uh, events take place in the world mm. we interpret it through something called cognition uh, after which we have an emotional response mm. and uh, and what cbt presumes is that the problem in this whole scenario is cognition mm. so uh, two people experience the same uh, ex- same event differently you know you get depressed and i cope with it mm. so What's wrong is that you, you're, something's up with your cognition. Mm-hmm. So CBT treatment uh, tries to train you to have different kinds of thoughts so that you will have different sorts of feelings. Essentially, I think that's what it boils down to, second mm-hmm. way of CBT. Um, so, so it's a sort of control. It's learning to control your uh, inner life. And indeed, Layard says exactly that, and I quote him here. Uh, he says that, Human beings have largely conquered nature, but they have still to conquer themselves. And in another place he says, the inner life determines how we react to life. So how can we gain control over our inner life? So the whole idea is uh, control. Then they fashion these um, treatment packages, you know, which will be, we'll do X, we'll do Y, we'll do Z, and so on and so forth. But the treatment packages themselves are not tested. You know, they're sort of, a, a, they become a, a given. It's a, the, the hypotheses behind those are not tested. They're in effect, they're articles of faith. Mm. So these um, uh, treatments are now tested in the usual way, put through some trial. Um, but unlike um, medical trials, the numbers of people uh, in these um, Um, so-called trials are minuscule, you know, 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, and so on and so forth. So um, um, some are given the the treatment and some are, um, they call it Tau, treatment as usual. They're just just against doing nothing. So treatment versus doing nothing. Mm -hmm. They proclaim this to be a randomized controlled trial. It is not at all. It is not a a randomized controlled trial because everybody knows whether they're getting a treatment or not. Mm. It's very clear. So here's a piece of research which they ignore. And the piece of research is that if you do anything, the person feels better compared to nothing. So they tested um, uh, medication, placebo, some form of therapy, and something else versus doing nothing. All those who received something did more or less did better than those who received nothing. Mm. So what this says is that every trial you do will come out in favor, more positively towards the treatment because that that is how we are as human beings. Yeah, yeah. Um, So that's one thing. Then the pharmaceutical industry, meanwhile, in bed with the regulators, they, they've Over the years, the decades, they've lowered the standards significantly. And um, somebody like um, Goldacre writes about that in Bad Pharma. There's a book called Cracked. Anyway, lots of people uh, talk about how the pharmaceutical industry has corrupted research practice. So one of the things, one of the norms now is um, that a trial has to just demonstrate something called statistical significance for it to be considered, uh, to be given a license by NICE, Mm. the regulatory body called NICE. And it requires just two trials to show statistical significance. Because with two trials, then apparently you've shown repeatability. Mm. However, it is also the norm that they can... Be any number of trials. You know, they might do twenty trials because they before they stumble across two that are um, that show statistical significance. <clears throat> this is what they use, and and, it, and they're trying to change the system, but it is not really changing. The negative trials are just not published, mm. or they tend to be written up in ways that make it look like the outcomes are positive. Mm. And then what happens is that later on, even when and it's happened several times, the, uh, the negative trials have been discovered, you know, two positive trials, eight negative trials. The medication still continues uh, to be licensed. Mm. Okay, and that's what, that's what the regulatory authorities say. We're only interested in the fact that there were two positive results. Mm. So that, that is the, the corrupt system that is being employed by
2: CBT. Well it's one of the corrupt systems. There are others aren't there? um, The other one that you you talk about as well, other people have spoken about, but it it is um, where they send say 170,000 people for treatment but only end up um, dealing with a very, very small percentage of actually people who actually go along for a second session because they weren't at all happy with the first one yeah. or didn't even like the sound of the treatment, so they didn't turn up. And yet, yeah. so they ignore all those, which yeah. is, uh, that's another type of deception, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And it's, uh, again, other people have done a lot of work on this and I mention it in passing. Uh, you know, so, um, I don't know, I think it was true. T- I think one figure, I think I'm remembering this right, is that out of every eight people that um, volunteered to take part in depression trials, only one was selected. Yes. So, so seven don't fit. But yeah. when when they find these positive results, they don't say very specifically it is for this very narrow population, this unrealistic
3: population. Mm.
0: They say this is a treatment for this ailment. Mm. They, they work on 10 out of 100 but then they claim it applies to the entire 100 mm. uh, including the 90 that they've just excluded. So NICE then has again very narrow protocols for the kind of evidence it will even consider. Uh, so if there is research that compares CBT with psychoanalysis or CBT with Gestalt NICE, the regulatory authority, will not even look at this research mm. because it is not of the form that they wanted. The sort of research they want or will only consider is taking one di- diagnostic category from the DSM and applying one treatment to that. Mm. They don't compare treatments. Mm. So if a if a treatment cannot fit into that modality, it just doesn't feature. Mm. So the game is cooked, so mm. that the only, only um, treatments that can get tested are a very particular reductivist, positivistic, cognitivist treatments. The mm. rest will fall by the wayside. Um, yes. So this analogy was that uh, if I had decided on a protocol, that um, which was to, to decide on substances that are food from that which is not food um, and I've decided that the only things that I can pick up with my chopsticks constitute food um, so according to this protocol soup would never count as food mm. because I can't pick it up mm. and you telling me that you've eaten it that you've been nourished by it and so on doesn't count in my protocol that is just non-scientific anecdotal evidence. Mm. Uh, so it just doesn't feature. So I think most therapies, and certainly the kind of therapy I um, practice, would be a soup to mm. this, this kind of positivist protocol. Mm. So I just can't even enter the mm. paradigm. Mm. But there are people who are trying to, um, particularly um, some of the psychodynamic schools, they try to enter the paradigm But in order to do that, they've had to, in a way, solidify their soup, turn it into something substantial that they can pick up with positivist chopsticks. Mm. So, doing that, they have turned it into something it was not before. They've turned Mm. it into something else. Mm. In a way, they have corrupted their own way of working in Mm. order to fit this paradigm.
3: Mm.
0: Um, So, you know, there are certain... Forms of therapy they're getting, but that is how they um,
2: come to feature, you know,
0: mm. interpersonal therapy as it's called, and mm. so
2: on. And and CBT itself, because it's um, you know in practice not seen to be very effective. It has to add on things like CBT mindfulness, for example. They they add relaxation as part of the treatment because uh, when people relax, they start to feel better mm-hmm. and. Uh, can absorb other ideas and so on. And it's no longer CBT. It's bringing in ancient techniques to try and improve it, which is a a sort of an indictment of their basic understanding that it's um, uh, thought that's affecting emotions. Whereas if you're calm, if you've been calmed down, you can see the bigger picture more easily um, and uh, be helped that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that is the case, that um, there are um, CBT is not one thing. There are several different versions of it. and They're in conflict with each other, but they're all called CBTs. So there is uh, the first so-called phase of CBT they called was behaviorism. Then um, Aaron Beck uh, discovers that the mind is involved in how one experiences things. We're not just reacting mindlessly to stimuli. So that is when cognitism gets bolted onto behaviorism. And we have the uh, second phase of CBT, and that's the thought control one. Um, the ethos of this third wave is of um, acceptance. Mm. So they they um, promote things like compassion, acceptance, mindfulness, and so on. Whereas the second wave is that of control. Mm. So they're both called CBT. Mm. And what makes them CBT, I think, is that they are tested in a certain way, that, or they're allowed to be, that mm. they can be manualized. Mm. and 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 uh, it is it's helpful if they have the term cognitive in it somewhere
3: mm. in the name of it.
0: So very different things get put into the same bucket. One for treatment, uh, or the ethos of it, contradicts the basis of another one, but they all
2: carry on. Mm. Uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's very strange the way that's happened and how it's squeezed out um, other approaches to therapy and quite distressing for those of us trying to do more effective therapy in other ways. Yeah. Uh, you've talked a bit about how, the cbt narrative is a political one but it is a political one isn't it it's yes. um i find that really disturbing in a sense because you've got these elements of control and acceptance in other words the fact that you've lost your job and uh you're behind with a mortgage and all those things are not really bought into the equation you know why you're worrying you know which is making you anxious and mm-hmm. and then producing you know these depressed symptoms yeah. um and it really suits politicians, doesn't it? Because they're not to blame. It's it's yeah. your thinking that's wrong, not us.
0: Yeah. And this is this is where, <clears throat> I mean, I think it's no coincidence CBT has come to flourish in the time of neoliberalism, mm. and because it's exactly that. You know, so the the neoliberalists argue for privatization. So our health service is being sold off. They argue for the bottom line and efficiency so they say you know a if you leave institutions alone um, the, the weak will go to the wall the most efficient will survive <coughs> and a social darwinism mm. and um and so you know then they outsource things um quality the, the sort of quality of service is reduced people become made redundant you know the, the usual sorts of things where yeah. Actors are shut down in Manchester and they move to China. So yeah. people get anxious, depressed, distressed, very understandably. They yeah. become unemployed. But none of that features in the narrative. The narrative says, that's unfortunate. You know, if only they tried harder, uh, yeah. they would get into employment. Yeah. What's-his-name said once famously, you know, get on your bike. Yeah, I can find a job. Yes. So uh, research... Is uh, habitually amplified, mm. and one of the ways it's done is that the uh, the, the results are uh, put out in ways that are um, relative rather than absolute and to explain what I mean, I use the analogy of the lottery mm. so if I buy one lottery ticket, I have a chance of one in fourteen million winning the lottery, something like that. let's say I buy two tickets. I could say that I have doubled my chance of uh, increasing the lottery, or increased my chances by 100%, which Mm. sounds quite impressive. That's the relative increase relative to the one ticket.
3: Mm.
0: If I buy 10, I'm increasing by 1,000%, but only relative to that one ticket. Mm. But Mm. in absolute terms, I've only increased my chances of 1 out of 14 million to 2 out of 14 million, Mm. not very much at all. So, one of the ways researchers publish is that they use the relative figure, not the absolute one. Mm. Um, For example, a well-regarded third-wave treatment is called Dialectical Behavior Therapy, DBT. So, within 10 years of its introduction, there were over 25 data-driven scientific papers that were published in support of this treatment. So it looked very, very promising. But then a um, researcher called Shiel I think it was Scheel, um discovered that each and every one of these 25 studies drew on data from the original study. And all, almost all of them were written by members of the original research group. Gosh. And the Numbers, the sample size in the original research, it was, I think, about 24 in the DBT group and 22 in the control group. And all the sort of subsequent studies that drew on that, you know, they they took smaller and smaller fractions of people and they were down to 13 or fewer uh, members. So all that research that looked so fantastic that was published on DBT uh, is based on that sort of samples. Mm. That shows, well, throws a light anyway.
2: It does, and it parallels what happened with uh, the development of antidepressant drugs, doesn't it? Where yeah. it's exactly the same sort of thing. Yeah,
0: there is still, um, I mean, research shows that placebo works almost as well as an antidepressant drug. Mm. And, uh, but that just keeps getting. And that has been repeatedly shown uh, as a science, but that just keeps getting sidelined because it doesn't suit the vested interests Mm. of psychiatrists, certain kinds of psychiatrists, Mm. uh, or of the pharmaceutical
2: industry. Um, The the vested interests supporting CBT, I, I would say, include university psychology departments anyone in management uh, involved with human resources and welfare and all that sort of thing, yeah. and the political parties that want to say, like Theresa May did recently, her leg- legacy will be um, in putting more money into mental health, which means CBT. So, you know, in fact, it's more of our money being wasted so, so the vested interests are equally as powerful as the pharmaceutical industry's vested interests, which is
0: yeah, the... I mean, the they are, yeah, yeah, they are all vested interests, and they all, and that's why I call it a tsunami. Yeah. They all come together yeah. to produce this sort of very powerful, irresistible force. Uh, mm. and, and the other body to add to it is this body of clinical psychology. Mm. They too, you know, wanted to, in the... Um, Nineteenth, twentieth century wanted to be viewed as a respectable scientific discipline, mm. uh, like the psychiatrists before them. So, in order to be scientific, they had to do things that were apparently measurable. Mm. And this, the treatment package called CBT, suited their um, project. And so, they—I think—not all clinical psychologists do this, of course. Um, many, many borders. this. But the main, mainstream clinical psychology takes up and fosters CBT in order to uh, enhance their own prestige, the scientific... Company. And to get funding. And to get funding, yeah. So, so in that way, both clinical psychology prospers, as does CBT. They both come to prosper.
2: Mm. You talk about the corruptions of science, and you, you, you talk about amplification... Overgeneralizing, I suppose that's an extension of amplification, objectification, subjectivity. I thought, I thought all that. I, I thought every piece you wrote about all those different types of corruption were absolutely fascinating, and I would urge anybody to, to read your book um, because it's such clear thinking about these issues. It's it's
0: just the way um, figures are spun. Uh, yeah. So, for, for example. Um, there's a there was a researcher called Sterling, and he looked. Um, I think it was 1959 or something like that. He looked at all the um, psychology research published and um, treatments, and almost all of them were found to to be effective. You know, mm-hmm. according to the they were all statistically significant, which is this p figure. You know, p should be less than 0.5 and he says that's remarkable you know that it, it must be that something called p hacking is taking place ie calculations are being done in ways that make um, and it's always possible to do calculations that demonstrate that your treat that your outcomes are mm. p less
2: than 0.5 yes yeah, you tell a story about somebody who was dis- disappointed in the results of his research, and he got talking to one of these P-hangers. Yes. I said, oh, we can make that turn uh, into whatever you want it to. Yes. You know? And yes. that's a terrible thing. You know. It's not science. Yes.
0: One, of one I mean, my last chapter is, um, I call that Statistical Spin Linguistic Obfuscation, and that looks at specifically mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So this is a third-wave therapy. Mm. And um, there were two publications, both which had similar findings. And so they'd reached the scientific holy grail, replicability, and it was, they were given a license by NICE. Mm. Um, so I looked, you know, so it looks impressive at first sight. But when you um, look further into, the, um, into that research itself, yes. so NBCT talks about, in some moments, it talks about prevention. and In some moments, it talks about reduction. So sometimes they're promising preventing depression, and other times they're pre- uh, presenting a reduction. And when you look at it, um, what they're promising actually is not a cure or recovery at all. It's just a reduction in the symptomatology. Mm. So if you were saying previously, I'm depressed on a scale of eight, and if you said now you're depressed on a scale of four, then that would, be cons- that would constitute a um, positive outcome. You're mm. still depressed, only less depressed. Mm. So that's one thing. Then uh, it seemed like this actual treatment when to the general population that they were studying was only about one out of 14 people, it seemed to help. Mm. But they never cite this, this figure in the paper at all then for some mysterious reason, and the reason remains mysterious, those who'd suffered from depression three times previously and had recovered, when they went through this treatment, MBCT, there was less likelihood of them relapsing. Mm. Right. So, okay, that's an interesting finding. And uh, then the actual statistics that they work out, they said they will relapse 39% less. But but again, this figure is the relative figure. When you look at the absolute figures, the reduction is 25%, not 39%. So that's one thing. Another thing that happens in this paper is this 39%, as they write their um, descriptions, in one paragraph, it becomes almost a half. So 39% in words is written, it becomes almost a half. A few paragraphs later, it almost disappears and it becomes a half. Gosh. And then a few paragraphs later, well, a half is 50%. So we have 50% in figures. Mm. And if you go to the MBCT website, this is what you find. 50%. Mm. Actually, it's 25%. And then for this very peculiar population. Mm. Then both papers also show that people who'd suffered depression twice or less after going through this treatment, they relapsed more after the treatment, actually made them more ill. Mm. But then they say, but we've done an analysis on this, and these figures are not statistically significant, so they are meaningless. But both, both studies reproduce the same finding. Those who had suffered twice or less, two or less, their chances of falling ill later their definition increase Mm. and increase substantially
2: Mm.
0: they have ways of writing this is the obfuscation
2: it is i mean it's astonishing that 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 goes on i mean uh, there was a book written i don't know if you call it it's called the buddha pill if you if you read it no Uh, these people who are really into meditation and mindfulness and all that sort of thing they started to hear stories about how People were having psychotic breakdowns as a result of doing mindfulness and um, it, it, all, all other kinds of problems that were resulting in. And mindfulness has always been sold as something harmless and wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. But in fact, with certain types of people, it's the exact opposite, it's very dangerous. Yeah, And that's very unpopular because people like to think, oh, you know, I go to my yoga class, my meditation class, my mindfulness class. Um, But the reason they go to all those classes is usually because they're quite neurotic anyway. You know, they're just trying to put something into their life that isn't there now by doing these things in meeting. But they're getting some needs met. You know, they're meeting people. They feel more, their life is more meaningful, but it's actually um, splitting them off from reality. You know, it's taking them away from f- focusing on the real world. Yeah, um, and it's like it's like um, you know, some if somebody
0: um, stays very very busy, for example, even to the point of exhaustion, perhaps they are doing that in order to stay away from difficult thoughts, feelings. Um, so if you remove that defense through some strategy, even mindfulness, um, then you are faced with these difficulties. Mm. Then they are to be
2: worked through. Mm. But it's true, you know, I guess somebody could suffer a breakdown at that point. I, I, I thought your book was absolutely wonderful, I, I couldn't put it down. Any, anyone who, who just looks at the index, you've got some sort of fantastic reviews fired, for example from Robert Whittaker, author of Mad in America, and from Sami Tamini, who works the uh, Lingatia Partnership Foundation and HS Trust, and and many others, you know Rex Hay. But I I just think that the titles "Once Upon a Time in the West," "Physics Envy," the Neem Tree, which you talked about.
0: Maybe um, I can say a bit about the happiness story. Yes, please. So so the uh, Enlightenment philosopher Jeremy Bentham, the utilitarian. Um he advocated that uh, government policy should should try should be in the service of increasing the happiness level of the nation and utilitarianism in short form is the greatest good for the greatest number but so happiness itself um, he tried to measure it and but of course in principle one couldn't measure it so this idea languished for some hundreds of years until the psychologist Seligman came along what uh, what he did was And he's the sort of modern happiness guru. Mm. And and when he started out his career, he started out his career um, giving electric shocks to dogs in situations that they couldn't escape from. Mm. Then um, he put them in situations that they could escape from and gave them the self-same shocks. And they didn't try to escape. So he said they had learned helplessness.
3: Mm. Um,
0: This was his great finding. And he said that um, learned helplessness was a form of depression. So, so this is how, and depression is the opposite of happiness. Mm. So this is how this got uh, formulated. So this is how hap- happiness then sort of comes back into, onto the modern scene. And then because people can do brain scans and they can see bits of your brain lighting up when you're happy and you're sad, mm. this makes happiness now an objective phenomenon yes and everybody gets very excited and uh, and now we can study this thing called happiness and we can have a science of happiness yes but but it's not a science because all you can see is bits of your brain lighting up when you're with different feeling states and why shouldn't they light up yes the brains are parts of our bodies there's no say
2: happiness is real you know because we can see it on a screen
0: yeah, yeah. no exactly exactly the fact that i feel happy or my experience you as happy
2: again like the name tree counts for nothing that, I mean that that really kick-started it all didn't it I mean there is, there is the, the, the problem is there's attractive ideas there in the idea of learned helplessness which is really another way of talking about conditioning uh, you know some people do get conditioned by uh, repeated cruelties for example mm. and they, they end up feeling uh, you know that they can't do anything about it and they get depressed and uh, And why wouldn't they and some of them commit suicide but that's not the same thing I mean, but if talking about it in terms of happiness and depression being the opposite of happiness it's just an, a nonsense isn't it it's just a, mm-hmm. a bridge too far
0: and you know it's um it's true of all of us in the sense that you know we've had our life experiences that made us who we are yeah yeah you know, in that sense and and I think in this work we're sort of trying to come to an understanding of that story in history mm. and, and to some degree, not liberating ourselves from it, but you know, freeing ourselves so they becomes more conscious. Mm. we gain more knowledge
2: mm. of ourselves that's the freedom and that's a, a long time project and, uh, the, the thought that um, you know, young psychology graduates can actually go out into the world and help people do that (laughs) it's a bit ridiculous isn't it
0: but it's not even psychology graduates you know the the cbt training is a one year training the people delivering it are uh, not required to be in any therapy themselves Mm. why should they they're not suffering from a mental illness and they they learn to use the manual Mm. and some of the people i interviewed you know, because it makes a big thing out of research. And, but the, the people um, being trained in CBT uh, aren't actually trained to think about research mm. at all. It doesn't feature in their training. Mm. Now, a lot of this stuff is just taken at face value as mm. uh, truths. Mm. Research says, therefore, it is true. Mm. Critical thinking isn't a, isn't a part of this.
2: Well, it's no longer part mm. of um, most university courses, it seems to me. Yeah. not just in this field, but in other fields as well. No. Um, We we once said to a professor, you know, gosh, what a wonderful job you've got, you know, teaching people how to think critically. And he looked blank. (laughs) He said, we don't do that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And that's even true, I think, on many psychotherapy trainings. You know, Uh, they they have the way. And that's... uh, And you have to swallow it. And if you question it, it's because you don't really understand it.
2: Yes, yes. Yes, what made you think that? What made you ask that question? This yeah. kind of thing comes back at them, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of psychotherapy training is very cult-like, and I, yeah. I saw that straight away when I started looking at this field.
0: Absolutely. And then, you know, you become your cult against another cult. Um,
2: them and us.
0: Yeah. Um, just a round of, there's research done in all these corrupt ways which is which are and suppose so it's supposed to be examined by this body called nice yeah National Institute clinical excellence so and and that's supposed to examine treatments of you know across the board you know from surgery to whatever and um, and what they do is that they develop a uh, guidance development group that's supposed to look at all the evidence and then make um, give it deliver advice on that basis and that's interesting. it's supposed to be advice, but actually turns into, turns into law. But so in psychology, the guidance development groups are primarily uh, made up of clinical psychologists and others from a positivist background. Mm. So they are going to favor treatments and evidence of that certain kind. Psychotherapists hardly or don't feature in these development groups so these people then write their advice. In effect, they're advising the legislators. The mm. legislators read this advice, and on this basis, they create policies that decree that it's the cognitivists that are best placed mm. to deliver these kinds of yeah. treatments. So this is a bit like poachers writing rules of good practice for gamekeepers, yeah. rules that favor the poachers. Yeah. So the whole game is, um, is cooked. Uh, and, like I was mentioning earlier about that there have to be just two studies that show statistical significance mm. for treatment to be validated, so nice is a very um, biased body mm. then um, then the whole thing becomes reinforced that insurance companies say oh, we will only fund nice validated therapies mm. so that gives another impetus to the term mm. then. um, It's the body called IAPT, Increasing Access to Psychological Therapies, that is um, given the task of bringing this great therapy to the general population. And this body is seriously underfunded, even in its own terms for what it does. But nevertheless, it too manages to produce statistics that show that it's delivering the service and people are getting better. Mm but it does this by again by manipulating statistics. So um, one, one example of this is that somebody who's received CBT and they've been pronounced cured in some way or recovered uh, a few months later, if they come back into the service, having quotes relapsed, they have to be seen by another therapist, not the one that they saw originally Um, because by this means, it's actually a follow-up treatment, isn't it? Statistically, it is made to look like a new treatment.
2: Ah yes.
0: And now the statistics will show that two people have been seen once, and two people have been cured rather than one person twice, and that the treatment has failed. Mm. So this is one kind of way. Um, another shocking um, norm and, is that if a person comes for just two treatment sessions and then doesn't come back for the, the re, their remaining 18 or 10 or whatever it is, if they just attend two, then that is counted as a completed treatment.
2: Even if the person has walked away because they can't stand the therapist the or that ridiculous and, way of dealing with it.
0: And it says so in in, their, um, you know, in, in, in sort of government documents. It says this, including death. So they don't come back, including death, it counts as a completed treatment and as a success. Goodness me. So if that, someone
2: commits suicide and that's completed treatment.
0: Yeah, that, that would be completed treatment because yeah. they came from... And especially if in the second treatment their scores showed, you know, an improvement compared to the first one. And mm. that is a successful completed treatment. Mm. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of um, chicanery.
2: Yeah, masses.
0: And this, this is what I call sort of hyper-rationalism. Um, where it's the numbers that trump reality,
3: mm.
0: numbers trump experience. Mm. And only the countable is
2: allowed to count. Mm. And this hyper-rationality is, is um, infecting everything, isn't it now? I mean, it's going yeah. it's in all aspects of political policies to do with transport, education.
0: Yeah. They look at, I mean, uh, according to government figures, homelessness is under control. Mm. Homelessness is going down um, by, but, but according to others, as you know. I think the last figure I saw was something like 50,000 homeless and rising. Mm. But um, the their government's had a figure of something like 3,000 or 2,000 across the nation. Mm. Um, but, you know, numbers. The figures, are, yeah, lies, damned lies and statistics, yeah. as they say. But because it's a number, it's alleged to be objective unlike my experience of walking from
2: Charing Cross to... Yeah, all the people in doorways.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, I know. That doesn't count. When a therapist is a good therapist and gets, you know, does good work, doesn't matter what type of therapy, really, they go to their, but it's not CBT, and they go to their GP, and their GP says, uh, well, you know, this we, I just give, People has to have CBT for their depression or their anxiety disorder or whatever. Um, what, what could therapists do about that? I mean, can is there any way to uh, to survive the tsunami, as it were, or fight back?
0: Well, the, the whole system is corrupt, isn't
2: it? Yeah, I
0: know. So, so in the, in the, when it's like when it's systemic, at such a deep. Lovely.
2: It is, I mean, uh, that's something, they have lots, always having um, articles about some, some depressed celebrity or uh, yeah. someone who's yeah. an addict, and, or, or pop yeah. star or something, and they always say, journalists always say, you know, they CBT is the answer to this, and yeah. they've been indoctrinated with it.
0: Yeah. yeah, so it's sort of a self-reinforcing yeah. rhetoric,
2: isn't it? Yeah, it is. Mm. I'd like to end on a positive note there, you know, there must be something that we can do about this.
0: Um, you know, I suppose this, this book is, is one attempt to do yeah. something about it. And, um, and thank you for your appreciation. You know, I'm, I'm in private practice, so I have the luxury of being able to do um, whatever it is I do. But it is, I think, say certainly in places like Sweden, where they um, too, uh, you know, CBT swept the board and killed off pretty much everything else slowly the chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah, they started
2: doing outcome research, didn't they, and found that it hadn't made any difference to the depression yeah,
0: yeah. and so on. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the process, but, you know, a lot of good therapy that existed before has all just been killed off. Mm. So um, this weed now dominates the field. Mm. Um, I, I, uh, I don't know. I'm sorry, I can't... Um, strike a more no, positive fair to ask it. the problem i'm assuming that the fact that it actually doesn't do what it says it does it you know, eventually will come through
2: and, and and i think so and like you mentioned earlier people have common sense and they can see it and, uh, you know and that's why a lot of people don't go along they, they're sent off to a cbt person they may go once and they say well that, well, well, that doesn't mm. deal with my um, the fact that I can't pay the mortgage because I've been made. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Yeah. people know this and they talk about it. You know, i, I, I
0: mean, it is—it is everywhere. I had a, a person come to me um, recently who said, "I need to find a different way to think about things," which is the CBT ethos. I need, to, and because if I can think differently, then I will cope with the situation. Mm. So it's trying to teach people to be unha- to be happy. In unhappy circumstances and it's in schools you see now
2: yeah, yeah. You know, that's that whole philosophy yeah, and
0: you can choose you know according to this philosophy you can choose what to think and what to feel yeah and therefore what to feel you can you can choose
1: thank you so much to Farhad and Ivan for sharing their knowledge and thoughts on this situation Farhad's book is available to listeners at a discounted rate through the link provided on this podcast page. Many thanks for listening. Please do share this and our other podcasts with anyone you think will benefit from listening. Bye for now.